Good Saturday night, everybody. Going to try that again. The voice is not getting stronger, but the microphone and the AV system works well. Thank you for that, Miguel. Good Saturday night, everyone. Thank you for that uh, enthusiastic reply. Yes, indeed. Hey, I want to tell you something. I'm encouraged. Let me tell you why. I was dining earlier with some of the folks who were serving you, and uh, they were impressed. They were impressed. They noticed that as you came through the line, perhaps not all of you, you shouldn't be talking now, but as you went through the line that many of you expressed genuine and sincere gratitude. I love that. That's cool. You said, thank you. You acknowledged that someone else was serving you and you wanted to express it. Thanks. Truth be known, we're only halfway there. Halfway there in regards to messages anyway. Uh, I've done two and uh, there's two to go, Lord willing. Um, but in between, halfway there, I want to encourage you uh, to be someone who's grateful. Someone who's grateful. So as you're staying at pe people's homes, uh, look them in the face with a firm handshake and express gratitude. Thank them for their gracious hospitality. You can demonstrate that in the way in which you uh, uh, conduct yourselves as well. There's been a lot of people. There's been a lot of people who have been serving behind the scenes to make this weekend happen. And I want to encourage you to take the time to go up to them and say thank you. If they were involved in the tournaments, if they were involved in support staff, if they were involved in prices right at night, I love that. By the way, on behalf of G-Force, we want to say thank you for the TV. Um, we, we, uh, we appreciate that contribution since no one else secured it. Uh, thanks for, I'm kidding, anyway. Yeah, be sure to say thank you. Be sure to say thank you. Um, I've, uh, I count it a privilege to be with you. I mean that, I'm not just saying that. And so I wanna say thank you for being here. You didn't have to come, uh, but we're glad you're here. We're glad your youth leaders, thanks to them, uh, brought you. Uh, it's just a privilege to be together. Let me remind you where we've been and where we're going. And this is what I wanna say to you, listen to me. It's my suspicion, it's my guess that uh, the majority of you uh, would say that you are a Christian. It's my guess. I know that all of you are not. Uh, we know that, you, you know that. But the majority of you probably do know Christ as your personal savior. But I would also say to you this. I would suggest that the majority of you are not living the victorious Christian life. I remember years ago hearing Chuck Swindoll speak, a guy you don't know, so I don't even need to mention the name. Some of you do, some of uh, you seasoned folks. And he said, and it caught my attention, it captured my attention, he said, most Christians do, know what, do not experience living out the Christian life on a consistent, regular basis. That's a sobering statement. And I think it's true for you. I think it's true for the majority of you. And so here's what I want you to see. This morning, I share with you a favorite passage. I wanted to show you a favorite passage in God's word that deals with the problem of death. We looked at the grand and glorious gospel in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, specifically, where we are reminded of God's plan for salvation, which was in place before eternity, that was solely based upon his grant 
granting grace, his plan, not according to our works. Here's his plan of salvation that, that God had in place beforehand to rescue us from something. That's what salvation means. And to call us to something, a holy and righteous calling. And Paul told Timothy, who already knew the gospel, who already was saved, Paul t- t- told Timothy uh, that this plan came together when Jesus Christ showed up. His first advent, Merry Christmas, the incarnation, the plan of salvation came together. And so when Christ came, when Christ died, when Christ was buried, when Christ rose again, the plan came together. And as a result, death has been abolished. Now, some of you are goofing around right now and you have expressions on your faith, face, hello, that says, you know what, I don't care. And we do. And so we want to encourage you to think long and hard about the fact that death has been abolished. You're going to have to deal with death. And so how are you going to deal? Death has been abolished and life and immortality has been brought to light through the gospel. I wanted you to see that this morning. I wanted us to consider our theme for the weekend, one life to live. I wanted us to consider the abundant life only found in and through Christ. Everybody else All the others don't offer what Christ has to offer. He came and gave his life so you might have life abundant right now, today, looking forward to glory, which is still to come. Life abundant is found in Christ, but there's a problem of death. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. So we wanted to talk about life, and we wanted to talk about death. But tonight and tomorrow, if you're here tomorrow, I want to look at Romans 6, 1 through 14, and I want you to see in this passage that it explains to us in summary form and fashion how we can have victory in the Christian life. I so desperately want that for you. If I could shake you and say, here's how it happens, if I could make a deal and have you experience it, I would. I would have done it already. But the choice is yours to pursue the life that the Lord Jesus Christ offers to you. And tonight, you're going to see it in a passage, tomorrow as well, one passage that explains how to do the Christian life. I want to ask you a question before we do one more momo tonight. I want to ask you this question. What's your plan? What is your plan? How are you going to go about living as a believer? If you are a believer, I know not everybody is, but if you are, How are you going to go about living the victorious Christian life? Do you have a plan? How are you going to do it? Because again, I'll say to you, and I'm not being ugly, I'm not being rude, I'm not trying to rip on you, but I'll say to you, most of you aren't living that victorious Christian life as a Christian. And so we're going to look at a passage that gives us three key words and concepts, 14 verses. We'll look at a few more, actually but verses that in their totality explain to us how we can do it. I know not everybody will be able to be here tomorrow, so tonight I want to give you the three key words. You'll see them in the text tonight, some of them. You'll see some tomorrow as well, but I'm going to give them to you all tonight in our next Momo, uh, so you have at least the three words to laser in on uh, in your own study of God's Word. I want to do this amazing thing once again at 841. I want to invite you to stand without saying a word. Mm, I love it. Nicely done. Good hustle. Good hustle. I saw it. Good huss. Remember the first Momo I don't remember uh, is one, thank you, one 
life to live. The second one is the truth of the grand and glorious gospel, death abolished, life eternal. Make sure the digits are digitizing, yes. And it'd be great to get a picture of that, put it up on your uh, uh, website, beautiful, right? Here's, th- here's tonight's. You're gonna notice, uh, um, you're gonna notice, actually you're gonna notice it because I'm gonna tell you right now. Uh, the, the three words found in Romans 6 that you need to remember and know deal with first the intellectual, second the emotional or personal, if you will, third the volitional, and you'll come to realize that word means a choice. So intellectual, emotional, or personal, the third volitional, and here's the word in the momos that go with. The first is this. We're going to tap on the temples representing uh, our heads where thinking takes place, at least sometimes, and we're going to simply say no as we tap. No. You can even do a little nodage as you say it, right? No. And then you're, gonna, uh, you're going to just uh, grab the chinny-chin-chin like the, the deep thinker, right? The great thinker, and you're going to say consider. Hmm. And say the word consider and then do a little hmm as if you are pondering and thinking long and hard. You should be talking now. I appreciate the hmm. And so that's the second part. The first part is what? I forget. It's this. Tap. Knowledge. The second part is this. Consider. Hmm. The third part is this. You're going to take your hands as if you're bowing in prayer. Please, no noise with the hands. You don't have to clap. Just gently bring them together. You can do it. You're going to make it through this tough time. Hands together, and you're going to, imagine, you're going to just flip them like this. You're going to dive and flip. You're going to go, you can even do that noise if you want to. And then, watch, your hands are going to be out like this, and the word is going to be as as if you are offering yourself to him, to someone else. The presentation, it's all about presentation. The word is present. So we're diving first, and then we say present. Okay, three words. All together, ready? No, consider, hmm, present. All together, all of them. Listen, listen, I sense uh, a lack of harmony and unity, so let's try to focus. There's still cash money left. I'm going to make deals. Let's focus. I'll give you five bucks if you focus. I'm just kidding. Here we go. Let's do them all together. Three, two, what was the first one? One. Here we go. One life to live. Let's go. Death abolished. Life eternal. No. Consider, hmm, present. Fabulous, fabulous. Have a seat. I forgot to mention, and some of you forgot the reality that you can't sit without speaking. It's uh, incredible at 845. We're going to pray. We're going to pray, and I want to I ask that everybody, everybody, Everybody would just bow silently, and whether you get it or not, whether you care or not, I want to just encourage you to pray two things. 
God, take away distractions. Teach me whatever it is you want me to learn. Everybody, whether you're wiped, whether you're not, whether you're the youngest, oldest, all in between, let's pray. I'm just going to be quiet. I can do that. Let's all just pray that, and I'll lead us in a moment. Father, we pray because we need help. We pray because we are unable, insufficient, inadequate on our own to do this thing called the Christian life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Father, we can't do it on our own. And so I pray that you would take away distractions Tonight, some people are just distracted with themselves or the people nearby, caught up with the distractions of this empty life, and I pray that you'd help them. I pray that the Holy Spirit would help them to laser in on your truth. Take away distractions tonight, we pray, and we ask that you would teach us whatever it is you want us to learn. Father, there's a significant struggle represented in this room. And there is a need for absolute zealous repentance to occur and a zealous commitment to good works, not to earn or keep salvation, but to live lives out of gratitude for salvation. And so I ask humbly that the Holy Spirit would stir and that we would respond in a way that pleases you. So we ask for your help tonight. Father, I acknowledge and I pray for all of us that we all would hate sin, that we would view sin the way you view sin, as a holy and righteous God, and that we as believers would hate sin and love you more, that we would see who we are in Christ and to recognize that you want us to have abundant life now. Victorious Christian living now as we await the best that is yet to come glory. And so help us, Father, to look like and live like, walk like and talk like a child of yours should. I pray that you would bring conviction to believers, your children, who are consistently and casually embracing sin. And so we pray that you'd work tonight. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite professors in, in college, I went to Mass Bible College. One of my favorite profs was a guy named Ken Daughters. And in class, uh, applied theology class, he gave us an article. You could Google it, not now, but you could find it. I know you could. It's an article entitled, How to Win Over Sin. It's written for a believer. How to Win Over Sin. I asked you a question earlier. You forgot it, so I'm going to ask again. 
My question for you is this, what's your plan? If you wanna live this one life we have, which is brief, momentary, vapor-like on the planet, if you wanna live it for Christ, how are you gonna do that? What's your strategy biblically? What passage do you turn to? And so when Ken Daughters wrote this article, it was based upon our passage for today, Romans 6, 1 through 14. I had a class in seminary called Spiritual Life, creative title for the class. And my prof's name was Bill Lawrence, Prof Bill Lawrence. And he lasered in on Romans 6, 1 through 14 in that class. So I want you to hear me say tonight, this passage is rich. This passage is a passage that you can hang your life on as a passage in summary, 14 verses, that it can explain to you how to do life. Some of you have been to cemeteries and you have seen gravestones. And some of you have heard this concept before, but there's a date of birth and a date of death on, uh, on most of them. Some have a date of birth, but folks haven't died yet. The stones are there ahead of time. But the question I want you to ponder is the dash in between. How do you do the dash? How do you make that little dash, that time in between birth, uh, birth and time in between death, how do you make that dash count for Christ? This passage tells you how. And again, I'm suggesting to you, you'll see, it's not my words, it's in the text. You're gonna see three words, three words. Uh, some of them, the first one's repeated at least three times, but three words that explain how to do it. The first has to do with thinking. I wanna say to you, I wanna say to you as you're kind of sleepy, I understand, but I wanna say this to you, you have to think right in order to live right. Has to be in that order. You can't just say I wanna live right and not think right. Some of you right now are not thinking right, and as a result, you're not living right. You have to think right in order to live right. And when I say right, I'm talking in regards to the standard that, absolute, that is absolute that God has in his word. You gotta think right to live right. And so it starts with thinking, knowledge, know. Then it moves to a decision that you need to make personally, that this is emotionally true of me and then a decision that you're gonna to have to make and make over and over and over a choice to present your life either to God or to sin. It's a decision we can make once, a one-time decision with ongoing effect, but in reality, we have to do it over and over again. No, consider, present. There's a problem, we see the problem in the end of uh, chapter five, we're in Romans. If you haven't turned there like me, I invite you to. Romans chapter six, Romans chapter six, and I, I know uh, Tony has encouraged you to memorize this passage, and so youth group leaders, here's a story. Not many of you are gonna memorize this before you head out tomorrow, I get that, I get that. But you could, too, you could as a group say, let's try to do that. Let's try to memorize this passage when we go home. Let's try to own this one together. 14 verses that do what? Share with us how we can have the victorious Christian life. 
There was a problem in this particular day when this was originally written. It's a problem today as well. And the problem is this, abuse of God's grace. Abuse of God's grace. The book of Jude is a book I love to study with young people like you. And in the book of Jude, it warns about false teachers who deny the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is cultic. Uh, most cults deny the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they do this crazy thing. They take this concept called grace, and they flip it, and they twist it, and they redefine it, and they make it something they can use for licentious living. They take grace, and they twist it, and they say, because God's loving, because he's merciful, because he's gracious, I can do whatever I want and see whatever I want and be whatever I want and do whatever I want, and see and hear, and the list goes on. The word grace is abused, unmerited, undeserved favor, and some of you are doing that right now. And some people were doing that in the day of uh, the book of Romans being written, and so it, it says this. Romans chapter five, we're in chapter six, and we'll, we'll look there, but in, in the end of chapter five is this concept of, of sinning more for for as through one man's disobedience uh, the the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous and the law came in that the transgression transgression might increase but when but where sin listen to this verse 20 of chapter 5 but where sin increased grace abounded all the more that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we're not going to exegete and look at every one of those words, but here's what they were doing wrongly. They were thinking, okay, when I sin, there's grace. So how about I do this? How about I sin more so there's more grace? That's how chapter 6 starts, right? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Are you there? I know what time it is. I know if you had a full day. Truth be known, I get that. But let's look at God's word together respectfully and try to dig in, see it from the written page. Look at how it begins, verse one. Chapter six, he says, okay, here's the question. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Are we, are we supposed to just continue in sin that grace might increase? People were doing that. You're doing that. Some of you as leaders are not leading in holy and righteousness. We are taking the concept of grace and we're abusing it. And we're allowing it to give us license to sin. It's not a new concept. They were doing it. And so Paul says, are you kidding me? You're not going to find the words, are you kidding me? But that's the concept behind what he's saying. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so grace might abound? You know what he says in response? You know how he responds? Emphatically. I'm not a, a scholar. I don't know the original language as well, but I've been taught enough by those who do. And one of the phrases that is used here to describe the reply is meganoita. Meganoita. God forbid it. Absolutely no way should we continue to do this. I want you to ask yourself this question. 
You might not be saying it, but are you doing that? Are you somebody that is so casual with sin and comfortable with sin and familiar with the concept of grace and mercy that you just sin and not even think about it? You don't blush. You're not embarrassed. It doesn't matter. That's what was going on in the day of Paul. And when he was writing this, he said, are are we to keep on sinning so grace might superabound? Absolutely not. Meganoita, God forbid it. I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to think about your life on the regular. On the regular, are you somebody that allows yourself to be exposed to sin? and it doesn't even phase you? Are you someone who on the the regular, day in and day out, are just constantly being bombarded by sin and it, it doesn't bother you at all? That's the kind of situation we had in this particular chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace might abound? No way, certainly not. Meganoita, God forbid it. And then he goes into thinking right. He challenges Christians, this is written to Christians, and so he challenges Christians to think about who you really are. This is crucial. You wanna have a victorious Christian life? You gotta know who you are in Christ. He uses the word no three times. No, no, no. Know what happened the moment you trusted in Christ. Know who you now are in Christ. Know the change that has occurred. The moment, the moment you trusted in Christ. Know what happened. And we lose sight of this. We forget about the change, the radical transformation that occurred the moment we trusted in Christ, we passed from death to life. The very moment that happened, the moment we trusted in Christ, the old was gone and the new has come. Paul writes it this way, therefore if any man be in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so Paul desperately in this section is trying to get the reader to see who they are in Christ first. Get it straight in your brains. We need to view ourselves through the lens of Christ and who we are in Christ and the change that has occurred in Christ. Sometimes it's referred to as the great exchange where he who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, became sin for us, that we who were sinful might become right, might become righteous. It's called the great exchange. He gave his life so that we might have life. And so Paul's writing here and he's desperate to get a believer, somebody who is saved, to view themselves correctly to know who they are in Christ. And so he says it this way. May it never be, verse two, meganoita, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now this is the phrase I want you to really think about. 
if you're someone who has trusted in Christ, if you really have, if you realize that you're a sinner, the wages of sin is death, if you realize that Christ died for you and you can be saved through faith and you've trusted in him, understand your standing, your position is that you are now, listen to me, dead to sin. When you were born, you were born enslaved to sin. Sin was your master. You were born with a sin nature. You were born with inherited sin. And the reality is you evidence personal sin from the word go. You're born sinful and owned and mastered by sin. But if and when you trusted in Christ, that all changed and you were set free from it. No longer is your master, your owner, you're dead to it. So I'm gonna ask you this question early on at 902. If that's true, and I just want you to know it is true, do you have to sin then? I want you to hear me say that I think we, we cheapen we cheapen, we make light of our standing in Christ. We don't recognize cognitively, intellectually, we don't think about who we are in Christ. And so Paul says, you've got to understand what happened the moment you trusted in Christ. I told you about one of my profs in seminary, Bill Lawrence. He used to say this phrase all the time, and so it's stuck in my head. Repetition is the key to learning. He used to say to the class over and over this, we shouldn't live like we used to be because we are not who we used to be. We, we shouldn't live like we used to be before we trusted in Christ because we are no longer who we used to be. The old is gone, the new has come, and our position in Christ is that we are dead to sin. So why is it so easy for you to sin? Why is it something so flippant and casual that we by choice do all the time? May I suggest to you, it begins with the reality that we, are, we have forgotten who we are in Christ and perhaps we never even really understood the significance of the change. I told you this passage, Romans 1. <laughs> Hello, hello. Romans 1 through 14 is a great summary of the Christian life. I'm going to give you one verse if 14 verses is too much for you. Galatians 2.20 does the same thing. Galatians 2.20, it says this. Anybody know what it says? Here's what it says. It's an awesome verse. Paul writes this and he says, you know what is true of a believer? You know what's true of me, Paul says? I have been crucified with Christ. It's a huge statement. So the moment you trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, this identifying with the person of Christ occurred. This idea of being baptized by the Spirit occurred the moment of salvation. This uniting if, it, with the person of Christ, him as our, our, our representative, we didn't literally die on the cross, he did. We didn't literally 
we weren't literally buried, he was. We didn't literally rise again, he did. But spiritually, this says that all happened to us. Isn't that wild to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And that's what Paul says here in, in verse three. Or do you not know that all of us, he just said who, that uh, we are dead to sin. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now I wanna talk to you a little bit about the concept of baptism. I think baptism is one of the most amazing things to witness, water baptism. I love baptisms. I love being involved. I love witnessing. Uh, Water baptism is a public declaration, a public declaration of what happened to you whenever it was that you trusted in Christ. It's symbolic. It's a gesture that says, guess what, everybody? Hello? I want you to know that I am a Christian. But not only do I want you to know that I am a Christian, I also am making a public declaration that I want to know and follow Christ. And so when you're baptized, you're telling people, I'm a Christian. But you're also telling people, for the rest of my time on the planet, I want to do the dash. For the rest of my time on the planet, I want to live my life for Christ. And when you're baptized, you know what else you're doing? You're telling everybody that's watching, will you help me do that? Will you pray for me? Will you encourage me? Will you support me? I want to ask you this question. Have you been baptized? As a Christian, have you been baptized? You're commanded to be. It's what a disciple, a learner and liver of what Christ thought and taught is supposed to do, to be baptized. Now, I want you to understand there's a lot of debate in regards to what baptism is being talked about here in Romans 6. There's the concept that I was referring to just a moment ago, this concept of water baptism. And and water baptism is is a grand object lesson of what happened when you got saved and you experienced spirit baptism, baptism by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit introduces you and makes you part of the body of Christ. You are... Uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place the moment you're saved. I would suggest to you, <coughs> mm-hmm, hello, I would suggest to you that this is talking about both. Initially and primarily, theologians, I'm with you, it's talking about spiritual, spirit baptism, but it can also be represented by the truth of water baptism. I've had the privilege of baptizing people all over the country. And, and um, I love what it represents. Do you realize that um, back in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would take a piece, a piece of cloth, uh, a plain a white piece of cloth, and they would baptizo it, baptizo it. They would take the cloth, and they would fully dip or immerse the cloth into a dye, into a color, and when that came out of the dye or color, it represented, hello, it represented something. Uh, Lydia was a, a seller of what? Anybody know? What'd you say? Purple, a businesswoman, uh, no doubt. And she uh, produced clothing, and some of that clothing was for uh, those of royalty. And so royal colors would be gold and purple. She was a seller of purple, Lydia. And and so that color, purple, represented something. 
If you were going to battle and you were going to wear black or red, those colors would represent, symbolize, identify with something. And so that's where we get the word baptism. Baptizo means to fully dip or immerse. And so when that person comes out of the water, it's a picture of who they belong to, like a uniform of sorts. Whenever I, I try to do this, whenever I baptize somebody, I give them a white washcloth, and I encourage them, write down your name and the date that you were baptized, and remember this object lesson, because you now belong to Christ, and you've publicly declared it. Your true colors are shining through. Story was told of this young girl. Listen to the story. This young girl understood the picture of water baptism. She understood that when she went under the water, it represented death. And if she stayed under the water too long, guess what would happen? She would die, right? Represented and identified with the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an object lesson. This young girl realized that when she came out of the water, it identified or pictured new life in Christ. And so she told the person baptizing her, she, she said this, listen, I want everybody to get this. So when you baptize me in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like we find in the great command of Matthew chapter 28, when you baptize me, and I say, this is my testimony, and you put me under the water. I want you to just keep me down there until I squeeze your hand. And so he said, okay. And the girl shared her testimony, and he said, upon the profession of your faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And she was totally immersed, the pattern we see in Scripture, under, under the water completely, and 10 seconds went by. And 20 seconds went by. 30 seconds went by. 40 seconds went by. And the crowd that was witnessing and watching started to do what you're doing as you're listening to the story. They started to get uncomfortable. They started to ask, what in the world? They started to think, hold on. And she held her breath just as long as she could hold her breath. And then she squeezed the guy's hand and out she came. And guess what she did? soon as she was out of that water. Tell me, show me what she did. <gasps> exactly, right? Took a big old breath. That big old breath represents the fact that, uh, represents or is a picture of rising from the grave, conquering death. Death has been abolished, and life and immortality has been brought to light through the gospel. So Paul writes here and he says, I want you to get baptism. I want you to get that when we were crucified with Christ, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. When we were crucified with Christ, here's what happened. And so listen to the words as we put a bow on it for tonight. He says this in verse 3 again, Romans 6, 3, I hope you're following or do you not know? There's the first no. There'll be three. You ought to circle it or highlight it or at least mark it. No is your first key word. Or do you not know, cognitively get, understand it intellectually, informationally, between the ears? Or do you not know that all of us talking to saved Christian people, all of us who have been baptized 
into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. When did that happen? Spiritually, it happened the moment you trusted in Christ. That's why this is often referred to as spirit baptism. Water baptism looks back at what happened when this occurred and tells the picture through a wonderful object lesson that I wanted to illustrate for you as I did moments ago. Realize it, know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Verse four, watch this. Therefore, we have been buried with him. So when Christ died, we died. When he was buried spiritually by being co-crucified with Christ, we were buried. When he arose, we arose. Look at what it says. Verse four, are you following? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that what? In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here's what I think you don't get or fully comprehend or perhaps even appreciate. That the moment you trusted in Christ, you became a new creation. You were born again. You passed just like that. You passed from death to life. And you were co-crucified with, with Christ. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he arose, you arose. And that new life is represented by resurrection. And so you're a changed person. And so you know what that means? We shouldn't live like we used to be because we are not who we used to be. The old is gone. The new has come. Look what it says in verse five. For end of verse four, so too we might walk in newness of life. That's uh, one life to live. That's doing life his way. For if we have become united, and that's a key word, Verse five, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. A wonderful picture of new life in Christ. Dead to sin, sometimes it's said at baptisms, alive to God or alive to Christ at the, the point of coming out of the water. A picture of the transaction that occurred the moment you believe. Look at what it says in verse six. See it? Knowing this. Again, cognitive, informational, intellectual, truth that we have to have straighten our, straight our brain. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. What happened to the old self? The old way of life, the old man, maybe your translation says, what happens? You tell me what it says. What happened to the old self, the old man, the one that we were owned by? What happens to it? What happened to it? You tell me. What does it say? Anyone? What's it say? Verse 6, knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
That's a true statement. It's not maybe, it's not perhaps. It's definitive, it's actual, it's transactional. It occurred the moment you trusted in Christ. You were set free from sin, dead to sin, no longer enslaved to sin. The old man, the old way of life has been abolished and destroyed. Look at verse 7 again. Or with me. For he who has died is freed from sin. Freed from sin. I want to ask you this question. As a believer in Christ, do we ever have to sin again? Now, there are people out there who I erroneously believe in a, a teaching that is called perfectionism. Perfectionism is a teaching where they misinterpret especially the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and they teach that we will be perfect before we enter into glory. Scripture doesn't teach that. But this is what Scripture does teach, that we should sin less and less as we become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember my dad making this statement. And it makes a lot of practical sense, as he did. He was a practical theologian. He said, John, you know what? Really, the, the change that occurs between the moment before we receive our glorified bodies and the moment we do receive our glorified bodies, that change should be less and less as we grow more and more like Christ. Does that make sense? As we are coming, becoming more and more like Christ now, the change doesn't have to be as drastic when we enter into glory. But I think we, we don't view sin the way we ought to. Some of you will say things like this. Pressure's too great. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody has TikTok. Every, everybody has Snapchat. You might say such, and so you want to have it too. You might say, you know what? I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. It was, I just, the, temp, the, the, the temptation. I was just overcome with temptation. I want to tell you this. Listen to me. All those things are not biblical. That's not what God says. God says, in Christ right now, you are dead to sin. I am dead, dead to sin. Every time that I sin, it's because I choose to. You don't have to. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with him. Amen. Clap your hands. So true. Verse 9, yeah, thank you for coming. Here's the third no. I'm going to finish with the word no, right? Here's the third no. Listen to it. Knowing that Christ, verse 9, again, between the ears, intellectual, cognitive, informational, the truth, not a feeling, a fact that we place our faith in. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, 
Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, continuing verse 9, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's true of Christ, and it's also true of us. But we must believe it. I'm going to close with a story that you're not going to believe, but it's true. It's taken from a book entitled The Grace Awakening. And I say this story in light of our next word, which is the word consider or reckon to be true, where we personally take the facts of knowing, 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 and we say, I know that's true of me. I know that I'm dead to sin and alive to God. And so here's the story. This woman, uh, this was told by a guy named J. Vernon McGee. I, I've shared this with some of you, uh, I think, here at the chapel at, on a Sunday morning back in the day. J. Vernon McGee told this story. He was a preacher from... Dallas had a good southern accent. He told the story uh, of a woman who tragically, tragically lost her husband. She died. He died. This woman was distraught, heartbroken, couldn't even handle it. Her husband died. His name happened to be John. And so what she did, what she did, I mean, seriously, she did this. I can, I can show you the, the page that it's written on this story. She took her dead husband and had him embalmed and placed in a clear plastic case in her living room at home. I know, right? It gets worse. Listen to the story. So here's dead husband, dead husband named John, embalmed and in a clear plastic uh, case in her living room. Well, she was really struggling, so she wanted to get away. I'm not making this up. I am not making this up. She wanted to get away, and so she took a trip to Europe, a trip to Europe, and you know what happened? She fell madly in love with someone she met in Europe, and they married. They came home to the States. I'm serious, right? They came home. Listen to me. Let me finish the story. They came home to the States, and this new husband wanted to take his new bride and pick her up and carry her in a gentleman-like traditional fashion across the threshold of the front door into the living room. And so he picks up her, uh, uh, yes, he picks up his bride. They open the door, welcome home, and there is John. In all his dead glory. And he says, who is this? Who is this? <laughs> I know, right? And she said, that's my dead husband, John. And he said, that's right. And so we're going to view him that way. And they dealt with the issue. You're thinking, you're making that up, bald man. You're thinking this story is not true. True story a book by Chuck Swindoll entitled The Grace Awakening. Here's the harsh reality. Listen. We live that way with sin every day. We act like it is still ours. And we keep it around. And we don't view it in ourselves as being absolutely freed from it. And so Paul says, you want to win over sin? You want to you know how to do the dash? 
Don't ever forget who you are in Christ, your identity and your position in him, and that you are now dead to sin and alive to God. Maybe that's not true of you. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ. So we want to ask you to think about that tonight. If you have never experienced this radical change, passing from death to life the moment you believe, hang tight. Let's talk about that. Tell me why you're waiting. If you have, I want you to ask and answer the question, how do you view sin? How do you view sin? I recently told the students at Tri-State this story, a story I've shared with some of you over the years. I had a mentor. His name uh, was Paul Sapp. Paul served at a camp at, uh, in, in Colorado called Camp Elam. He served at the correspondence school at Emmaus for, for, a se- <coughs> Hello. for a season as well. Paul Sapp, let me just tell you, was a giant of a man. He was, listen to me, he was like 6'5", six, 6'6", 350. He was a beast. And he wore cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. He was Colorado uh, through and through. And, and he had this high-pitched voice, like mine is doing, which isn't normal, uh, but had this high-pitched voice. You know what he used to say to me as a, as a mentor, as a man who encouraged me in my faith? He said, Jonathan? It was kind of like that. He said, Jonathan? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm sorry, but... He said, Jonathan, I want you to pray this every day. Ask God to help you hate sin and to love him more. And so if you've been snoozing this whole time, why don't you grab a hold of that nugget? Ask God to simply help you to hate sin and love him more. The truth is you're too comfy. You're too casual. Expose yourself to sin every day, all day, with your addictions and habits. And we're supposed to hate it and realize we're free from it. And we no longer need to do it. That's what the change is all about. Father, help us to view ourselves correctly in and through Christ. May we know, may we know, may we know who we are in Christ and the identification, the uniting with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection that